This is Book TV's Afterwards podcast. This week, author Edward Ball discusses his book, Life of a Klansman. He takes a look at white supremacy through the lens of his great-great-grandfather, who was a member of the Ku Klux Klan after the Civil War. He's interviewed by author and law professor Cheryl Cashin. Hello, Edward Ball. It's Hello. a delight to meet you. Good to see you, too. I feel yeah. like I know you from reading Life of a Klansman. It's so intimate. Oh and and I, I want to thank you for writing it. Um, so I'm going to dive in. Uh, you received an emotional inheritance from your Aunt Maud. Tell our audience what it was, the physical inheritance and the family lore. When I was a boy in New Orleans in the late 1960s, I had an aunt named Maud, Maud LaCorn, who was an elderly retired school teacher. And she was the family historian in my mother's family. Mm -hmm. who were all in New Orleans. And she was the keeper of the lore of, among others, our clansmen. And she um, had some papers and files, and she had a way of speaking about our family history that was like this. Now, the one to remember is our clansman, my grandfather, Constant Le Corn, because he was a redeemer and the redemption returned white people to authority in New Orleans after they had been dislodged by the Negroes. And if he had not acted in the battle of Liberty Place, we would not be here today. Anyway, so when she died, her papers went to my mother. And when my mother died, this is now decades later, her files came to me, her family history files. And this is how I rediscovered the story of our clansmen and wrote about it. So you remember your Aunt Maud. You, you've emulated her well. So you, uh, it sounds like she spoke of, and, 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 and say his name, Constant? Constant Le Corn. Right, Constant. Constant, spelled Constant. He right. was a Frenchman. He was a French carpenter, raised and spoke French. Right. And is it fair to say in your family lore, he was heroic? I mean, he was... He was heroic for a hundred years, mm -hmm. um, as were the clans people, the clansmen, for most white Southerners. Because mm -hmm. the Klan, in its first genesis after the Civil War, overturned Reconstruction and restored white supremacy when it was challenged by black authority and black politicians and black business and black voting. Right. So he was, a, for a century, he was a hero. But then in the civil rights period, the memory of the plan was altered, returned to some sense. And when it came to me, it was with some ambivalence. Our Klansman was no longer a family hero. Right, but you write early on in your book, you'd known about your Klansmen all your, as a child, and you were afraid of his story. Why were you afraid of his story? Because uh, the Ku Klux were the first American terrorists. And to acknowledge that uh, is not an easy thing to do to say, my people 
include white terrorists. Mm-hmm. And that is a difficult thing to do. It's radioactive and it hurts. So I was afraid of it. And you, you use a Creole phrase um, that roughly translates to wash your dirty laundry within the family, don't put it out, right? And right. you've done this before with your book, Slaves in the Family, right? Um, on, la- on lave les mains, no, on lave, uh, linge, on lave linge sale dans la famille. Wash your dirty laundry in the family. And you kind of betray that code because you have to, because you're a writer, right? I mean, this is what writers do, memoirists. They do it, yeah. And there's the famous remark by the, the poet Czeslaw Milos, which is that if a writer is born in a family, her or his family is lost. They're condemned to uh, exposure and shame. Right. Well, let's dive into Constant's story. Um, you paint a picture of him as he tries a lot of things. He's a carpenter for hire. He tries a lot of things and fails at things. Um, but one thing that he gets very good at is killing uh, in the military, in the Civil War. Um, can you talk about that? Yeah. Well, Constant Le Corn was 38 when the Civil War began. He was an elderly man as far as soldiers go. Uh, but he uh, was a Confederate infantryman for three and a half years and fought in many battles in Louisiana. And he returned home at the end of the fighting, like half a million other white Confederate veterans, having seen battles and having staged guerrilla attacks and very knowledgeable about tactics and this was something that fueled the rise of the white militias the uh, many many of the white militiamen the clansmen were confederate veterans who knew how to uh, stage a military assault right that was such an interesting insight which i hadn't thought about about all the white men who participate in the civil war that's where they learn uh organized violence um and in fact, Constant experiences his first massacre, does he not, in the Civil War? He does. During um, one of the last um, fights of upstate Louisiana in a, uh, in a place called the Red River, he uh, participates, appears to participate in a massacre of Union soldiers. Killing Union soldiers who've surrendered, who are not yes, surrendered. That's correct. Right. Yes. Yeah. right. Um, and, and there's a, a, this is a brutally honest book and I really appreciate it. There's a line in your book after you tell this story of this massacre and you say, um, the chances are better than half that if I, if me, uh, Edward Ball was there as a young, uh, a, a white Creole, I would have shot too. Um, and I thought, I, I, I thought, wow, that, that's honest. Um, mm. I suppose were I such a young white Creole, the chances are better than half that I would shoot captive Yankees. Can you explain why you mm-hmm. think it's a better than half chance that you, if it were you, you would have shot mm. Union soldiers yeah. too? Well, raised 
had I been raised in that place and time, I believe I would have been swept into the ideological um, climate of, of white supremacy and of defense of the white South, which was the ferocious drive of the Confederate soldiers to uh, defend which their homeland, which they believe had been invaded by uh, others. And I think we, in general, we flatter ourselves about the past. We tend to think, oh, well, I would not have been a, a white supremacist. You know, I mean, I would have been part of the resistance, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, had, had I been in Germany in 1935, I would have been in the underground resistance against the Nazis. Um, we condescend to our predecessors by giving ourselves a kind of morally superior position in relationship to them. And I don't feel that that's honest. Um, that's one point. The other point is, it is an impossible imaginary projection to say that a 21st century liberal uh, person uh, in this country, and by liberal I mean any person raised after 1960, any white person raised after 1960 who has a, some understanding of the uh, of the disasters of our national inheritance around the stories of race, it's impossible that we could be ourselves in a previous century. That's mm -hmm. another piece of self-delusion. Well, this is what's so wonderful about a microhistory, right? You're telling the story of a everyman, right? Yeah, you know, he wasn't, he was a, a carpenter, he was a, a soldier, he was a domestic terrorist, a Klansman, and I'll say to our audience, be careful what you wish for if you go off searching for your family. You, you, you point out that you have 16 great-great-grandparents, yeah. right? And if you go off looking, you might find that um, th there are scoundrels and, and domestic terrorists and slave owners, and, and, and you've done this with both sides of your family. But you, 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 you paint a picture of the time that Constant lived in, and all of the ideas that were swirling around, and you, 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 you use the terms like petit blanc, I hope I'm saying the right, au fait, um, terms that describe working people. Um, and you describe their resentments, their hostilities. Um, uh, it, it, you know, particularly for, for Constant, Constant was not a wealthy person. He didn't do as well as his brothers and he was utterly dependent on slavery, what little wealth he had. Can you talk a little bit about that class of people and the source of their resentments, their hostilities uh, toward black people, mm -hmm. the source of their hatred? <clears throat> well, the Deep South, this part of the Deep South, Louisiana was about 52% African-American. The majority of the African-Americans were enslaved, of course, at the time of 1860 when the Civil War was warming itself. And there was a, a relatively small white society of slaveholders, perhaps 15% of the white uh, population. And there was a rather large um, working class white population. And Constant Le Corne was 
a ship carpenter, and he was one of the uh, working men, a manual laborer. However, his parents had been slaveholders of some degree. I think they enslaved eight people. His grandparents had enslaved something like 30 or 40 people. So he is a person who experienced a class slide mm-hmm. through his life. He, um, he became pauperized and he believed, I think, uh, I'd never found any diaries or letters of his. He believed that uh, his um, status had been robbed of him, from mm-hmm. him. Right. And like many white Southerners of the day, they turned this resentment and frustration into a rage directed against people of color who had recently become emancipated and who had recently entered the public sphere. Right. And you talk about, so the very first Civil Rights Act in the history of this country, the Civil Rights Act of 1866, gets passed over Andrew Johnson's veto and Johnson's veto message is that giving civil rights to black people is favoring blacks over whites. And you immediately get white Democrats organizing to promote white supremacy. And you talk about how whiteness gets shaped. Whiteness is very much shaped in opposition to black rights. there's a line early in the book where you talk about, I'm struggling to uh, make the concept of whiteness as concrete as blackness. It's this submerged thing. And you, 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 you show all the ways in which culturally, you know, whiteness is getting defined. Can you talk about that? New Orleans was this hotbed of, of pseudo race science and, you know, but this idea of whiteness and, and, and after Reconstruction, it becomes much more potent. Yeah. You know, well, many of uh, white people then and now do not regard themselves as part of a racial group. Mm-hmm. We as whites often think that people of color are those who inhabit race and whites are not part of a racial group. So but you refer to in the book, I'm I'm trying to make white racial identity as visible, Mm -hmm. as conspicuous to us as African-American racial identity is conspicuous to us. I have an idea that white supremacy and white uh, self-regard is born or at least greatly amplified after the Civil War by events surrounding the, the acquisition of uh, voting rights by black people and by the first entry of black people into positions of authority. You mentioned that New Orleans was a center of scientific racism, and it was. It was this was an interesting discovery for me. The, the earliest American scientists are people in the Deep South and also elsewhere in the North who are trying to uh, describe how race is built into the body. These are, right. these are um, bone diggers and 
mm-hmm. and uh, and people who are interested in uh, the the fantasy that there is a separate origin of each race, that each race is a different species. And some of these guys worked and taught in New Orleans and they published in journals there. And others of them worked in Philadelphia, New York and elsewhere. But the first American science is race science. It's very peculiar. And this becomes uh, some of the intellectual justification for enslavement. And, you know, the, the Enlightenment thinkers did this around the time of the founding as well, right? So it's, it's the stories we tell to justify the way things are is very much part of our history. Well, let's, let's talk about what Constant did uh, after the war is over. Um, you t- Tell the audience what this, uh, it's the mechanics... Uh, Institute. The Mechanics Mechanics Institute Institute Massacre. uh, massacre. Uh, Tell the audience about this and Constant's role, you think, in it. Right. A year after the end of the Civil War, Black people are petitioning for the right to vote. And in July 1866, a meeting is convened in downtown New Orleans of two or 300 African-Americans who are newly in politics. And there are about 300 African-Americans outside of this place called the Mechanics Institute. And the purpose of the rally is to petition for the right of black men to vote. Uh, white um, politicians are in power at this point in New Orleans. And the mayor of the city sends the police force and the fire departments to the scene of this rally to break it up. Constant Lacorne is a member of a volunteer fire brigade, uh, as are many Confederate veterans. And he apparently came to the scene. Uh, There is no... Uh, fingerprint evidence that he was there, but the circumstantial evidence is quite persuasive. Mm-hmm. And when within two hours of the police or, and the fire brigades arriving at the scene of this meeting, some 200 African-Americans were dead by uh, gunfire and by uh, bludgeoning and lay scattered in the streets of New Orleans. And this, instit- this Mechanics Institute massacre provokes Congress to pass the Reconstruction Acts. Right, Uh, which I I did not know about that um, particular incident. And, and, you know, I've been teaching Reconstruction and uh, the Civil Rights Acts and the law of Reconstruction for years, but didn't realize there was this central animating event. And it reminds me of, you know, John Lewis and others getting attacked on the Edmund Pettus Bridge and that providing the, the, the impetus Ooh, right. for the Voting Rights Act, right? It's, it was a similar kind of event. 200 pe- black people maimed and dead and that helps the radical Republicans pass reconstruction over Andrew Johnson's veto. Right. And you're right, I do not feel culpable for the Mechanics Institute massacre or your, 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 your ancestors' role in it 
However, as a matter of conscience, I feel implicated. I have a feeling of wretchedness and shame. Um, I want you to talk about that. You, cause you, 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 you are really hard. I feel like on yourself, your family, on your tribe, you, you claim, you say whites are my tribe. Um, is this family shame you feel? Well, um, so many of the disastrous subplots of our national history are hidden behind curtains. And this is one of many. Mm-hmm. Um, and here's the crux of it. Uh, it is not an overstatement to say that the rampages of the Ku Klux and um, assaults like the Mechanics Institute massacre in some distant and mediated way have cleared further space for white life throughout the succeeding generations down to our own. Mm -hmm. It is not uh, a falsehood to state that the night riding and torment that people like Constant Lecorn and his gangs uh, perpetrated gives white, uh, uh, ordinary white folks, including myself, a greater sense of authority and security and ease down to this day because they were fighting for our people. They were fighting to extend the authority of our people as white people. That's the, uh, the, the net um, that's the net of it. Right. And I mean, it's one of the more, in a very honest book, one of the more brut- brutally honest passages, you write, whites are my people, my tribe. They were Constance people, his tribe, in ways that he belongs to us and to hundreds of millions. I know the honest way to regard race violence is this. American history is full of it. It is pandemic. The United States was founded upon racial violence. It is within the core of our national identity. And, and, you know, that's breathtaking uh, and and the opposite of all the shibboleths that children are taught in school. And I want to ask you, um, what do you think is lost or gained by seeing the nation's foundings in these mean, violent terms? Mm. Well, what is lost is uh, much of the um, self-regard that our uh, national storytellers allow us to bathe in America as the city on a hill, America as the land of um, freedom and opportunity. Uh, If you tell the national story with um, racial identity as the engine, and I think that it's possible to do that without distorting it, mm-hmm. you find that um, the settlement of the East Coast of America was uh, a racial act mm-hmm. with Native people being displaced and shoved aside. Mm -hmm. The uh, import of enslaved Africans was a racial act um, with 
ultimately 4 million enslaved uh, African-Americans uh, on the plantations of the Deep South. The movement of the country across the continent over the Appalachian Range and into the Middle States and finally to the West was a racial act. Mm -hmm. Native people literally being driven by forced march to leave parts of the country where white farmers wished to take up land. Uh, if you tell the story that way, you find it's, it's quite a different uh, story and it's not a progress narrative. Mm -hmm. It's not a narrative of gradual or um, universal extension of um, of authority and rights of property to all people. It's not that at all. It's something quite different. Well, do you think your tribe is um, open to hearing it the way you're presenting it? Um, using your terms, you said right. white people are my tribe. <laughs> right. Yes, it it is a novel uh, claim to make. I mean, African Americans often complain, oh, "Well, you know, I can't speak for all black people." You know, um, and African Americans are often asked by whites to uh, represent their tribe. Mm -hmm to white society. So I'm um, not a tribal representative. Okay, okay, all right. Uh, however, I'm telling, a, I'm telling a story. Well, we, we have this, uh, a new moment now of multiracial mobilization, right? Um, uh, after the deaths of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and others, um, we have, uh, I think it's fair to say it's been claimed um, perhaps one of the largest demonstrations uh, yeah. in the support of black lives in the history of this country. Um, and you're getting some resistance to that resistance. And um, you return to this theme again and again in your book, this idea of white supremacy rising, falling, I'm using your words, white supremacy rises and falls and rises again and subsequent generations live with and are defined by the traumas inflicted in the past. Um, and, and this is part of this, this reckoning that um, much of your work seems to be asking us to do. Um, can you talk about that a little bit, about um, why you think it's important for whites to understand how they may You've alluded to this, and you, you did this really brilliantly, I think, in a, a New York Times piece I read that you wrote in 2015, where you invoked the poet Claude, Claudia uh, Rankin, Rankin yes. uh, this idea that the past is in you, and you talked about, uh, well, I'll let you say, but you, you, you were trying to say that I'm not saying, like, my Klansman is the same uh, and in the or the slave patrols is the same as stopping and frisking today, but there's a certain entitlement attitude that comes from this history. Can you talk about that? The way the ways that future generations are implicated by the traumas of the past, and we carry these things with us. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think that the more we acknowledge that the experiences of our predecessors 
stamp their foot on our own lives, the better off we are, the more honest we are about our current circumstances. And um, the experience of enslavement um, does uh, hearken down to the present. The experience of being an enslaver, the experience of being a fighter for white supremacy um, speaks over the generations down to the present. Now, mm-hmm. you mentioned the uh, protests of the summer. It's an encouraging time, mm-hmm. I think. This year is a surprising turn of events. And in the marches in the aftermath of the tragic death of George Floyd, one could see, I think, many, many white folks um, participating in protests in a way that suggested they or we are regarding ourselves and our history and our identity in a fresh way for the first time. It's, right. it's, it's a historical kind of shift in consciousness. Um, the way the protests almost immediately moved to the, um, the takedown of monuments. Right. It was a very interesting kind of turn of events. And I think it's very encouraging. Now, having said that, we also see that white supremacy doesn't lie dormant. It advances, it grows more sophisticated. It finds new um, uh, commandos to uh, carry out its desires. And I don't think that uh, we're going to fall into a bed of roses uh, in our, you know, racial climate going forward, but it is a very interesting t- change of tone. So to please tell our audience about this uh, White League, um, would you call it a massacre or uh, the White League battle? Um, it was one of the larger, it was, it was part of the effort to end Reconstruction. Uh, sure. Yes. It's a complicated story. In 1874, the Civil War has been up, done for nine years, and the white militias, which are generally described as Ku Klux by the newspapers, that's mm-hmm. what they are called, are agitating, they're night riding, and, and one of the white militias uh, attracts thousands of members and is called the White League. And in 1874, in September, the White League organizes a battle, an assault, and a coup attempt involving 3,000 of its uh, members, including my ancestor, that temporarily that overthrows the White Reconstruction government in the streets of New Orleans. About 30 people die, um, half of them black, half of them white, and th- the success of the White League in toppling the Reconstruction government for only a few days is so exhilarating to the white resistance that it becomes legend and lore uh, in the city of New Orleans and through through the Deep South for generations. Um, Ultimately, a monument is built and the event, the battle is, is commemorated in annual ceremonies in New Orleans for many decades. And in your personal family lore, according to your Aunt Maude, 
Constant got his head split open. Injured, yeah, he has his head split open in this fight. Um, and it's, uh, it's a turning point in Reconstruction. Uh, it's, it causes the federal government in Washington to lose its nerve and to lose its desire to continue the effort to, uh, to integrate uh, institutions of power. And of all, ultimately, within a year, the federal government agrees to discontinue and uh, remove the federal troops. So it's the beginning of the end of Reconstruction, right. and your Klansman is implicated it, in it, right? And, and I got to tell you, you know, uh, one of the things you like to do in this book and in your previous book is interview present-day African-Americans who are descendants of people who were operating at the time. And you do that, and I, I want to tell you, I'm the descendant of a Reconstruction legislator in Alabama, right? Oh, yeah. So my great-grandfather in the 1870s was, you know, a mixed-race son of a former slave, of a slave owner and a woman of color. He's serving in the Alabama legislature from 1870 to 1874. I'm talking to you. Your great-great-grandfather was one of the ones who was shooting, right? <laughs> so here we are talking, right? And I have to tell you, this is the power of an intimate microhistory, right? I, I have read about this all my life, but nothing brings it to life more than seeing on the ground yeah. the shooting, the maiming, the killing, the raping. And I'm reading it, and it's like fresh pain for me. Oh, I can goodness. see my grandfather, you know, he gets elected on a day. Uh, I don't know how he survives, but he got elected on a day when people were shooting at, at Black people who went to the polls, mm. right? So it brings it alive. Um, Mm. And, you know, I just, I, I, I want to share that. Um, and one of the things you do so well is, tell me about your, 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 compul your obsession or compulsion to go and speak to what I call descendants, African-American yeah. descendants, yeah. both of slaves and of radical Republicans. Mm. You did that in this book. In your first book, you went to speak to descendants of slaves. In this book, you went to speak to descendants of a certain type of person of color, of, you know, very successful, accomplished uh, African-Americans who were in the fight for Reconstruction. Um, yeah. Tell me about that and, and anything you want to share about that experience. Yeah. I have the idea, and I'm sorry that it's painful to you, I have the idea that revisiting the scenes of historical trauma with personal testimony, if you like, um, has a, a positive effect mm -hmm. uh, insofar as we can pass through um, some of the hard stuff of our national life in a personal way. It has a positive effect. There are reasons why stories of of uh, violence and domination are little known. They are repressed and forgotten intentionally in most cases uh, and not properly commemorated. So the, uh, the, there are two families that I write about in Life of a Klansman, African-American 
families who were members of the Creole elite, the Creole of color elite, which was a large minority of African-Americans in, in New Orleans. These were business people and educated uh, people of all stripes uh, in the Reconstruction era. And they were on the scenes of one of the events that I write about, the Mechanics Institute massacre. And, and I identified a family whose uh, ancestors were nearly killed at this massacre and asked with their permission if I could tell some of their family history and, and for them too. Um, it's not uncommon that a family uh, who experiences the trauma of night riding or lynching or um, abuse generations later have this memory intact. And mm -hmm. uh, this was the case with one of the families that I meant, went to visit and uh, they, uh, with some, I think, with some sense of uh, discovery and renewed appreciation, wished to share the story of their uh, family's experience. So, so I, I think that at, at a micro level with individuals and individual families, it, it does provide some kind of medicinal effect. Well, I, I appreciate you doing that. You, you've been on this project with, this is your sixth book, but uh, particularly your first and your latest book, of, of um, showing how intertwined African-American experiences with white experience. They're not, they're not, you know, black history is, is American history, right? Um, they're, they're so intertwined and they're intertwined, you know, particularly in the South, right? Uh, black and white people uh, on the ground, even during the most virulently uh, awful times, we're intimately involved with one another. Um, do you feel like things have shifted uh, since you wrote your first book in terms of people beginning to embrace this idea that the African-American story is central to the American story? You know, and there, there seems to be a hunger, you know, for this- I think so. Race I, mean, I, I would like to think that things have shifted. I think that um, large numbers of ordinary folks are interested in able to tell and able to tell the stories of, um, of African-American uh, families and of African-American life. And I think that there is uh, definitely a much wider appetite now. And, but the, the key is what you mentioned, which is the interlocked nature of white and black society and memory and experience. I mean, we have been in each other's dreams. We have been in each other's beds. We have been <laughs> in each other's lives right. for centuries. Mm -hmm. And it is one hand cannot move without the other hand mm -hmm. responding. Right. That's, a, that's something that is a, a, an ideal um, uh, frame of consciousness to to achieve to to understand the the, uh, 
the nature, the interlocked nature of our destiny. And I, and that's something that we're, we're sort of inching towards. Right. Well, I, I want to ask you a question that's sort of a, uh, animated by as a fellow writer. Um, and, uh, you know, I also wrote a family memoir that went back four generations. So I could appreciate some of your struggle to tell this story where the uh, paper trail ends. Particularly, you're writing about a Klansman, and Klansmen were intentionally clandestine, so they weren't going to leave a paper trail about their plans to be in this massacre or whatever. And you, you give yourself permission to fill gaps with your imagination, your speculation about, you know, what Constant or his wife said or felt, you know, um, you see this often, I see him doing this, I don't see him doing that. I, I wonder about that device as a writer and, yeah. and how you feel about that and how you think trained historians feel about right. that. <laughs> well, um, I, I don't actually provide dialogue for people who, um, for whom I don't have evidence of their dialogue, but by imaginative projection, it is, um, I think when you tell the reader that you are reconstituting or constructing a scene, you're okay. And um, there is enormous circumstantial evidence right. for the lives and behaviors and movements of all kinds of otherwise anonymous white people and black people. Mm -hmm. uh, the reality is that only about one in a thousand people of any class uh, leaves a piece of paper behind that historians can later consult. And so built into the archive method of historiography is a kind of radical exclusion. If you depend only on paper, you're excluding uh, an overwhelming majority of individuals. A micro history, such as the one that I've written, tries to tell the stories of, in, of um, ordinary folks who had access to little education, who lived um, inconspicuous lives and who left no uh, papers and diaries and what have you. That's the experience of the majority of Americans, white and black and Asian and what have you. So using imaginative reconstruction and projection, I don't um, give um, internal interior narration uh, of, of my characters, uh, but I do, as you, as you imply, take some liberties with, uh, with uh, narrative events, and, um, and I announce it when I'm doing them. And you first tried to tackle this as a novel? Correct, yes. And, and tell me about that, and why did you give up on that and decide to do it this way? Right. <laughs> well, when I re-encountered Constant Lacorn in the papers that I inherited from my Aunt Maud Lacorn, I thought this story is so searing that it would be like holding a coal in your hand, hot coal, to write it as nonfiction. I should write a novel about this man, Constant Lacorn. And I tried, and it wasn't. Uh, it was not superb, so I set it aside. 
And finally, I decided this story is so searing, I have to write it as nonfiction. And mm -hmm. so I did. Well, I, I don't want to miss the Hayes Tone Compromise, just in case our viewers, just in case someone is not aware of that. Um, could you explain the Hayes Tilden com compromise and what form, how, how Reconstruction formally ended? Uh, briefly, in 1876, the presidential election pitted the Republican Rutherford Hayes against Tilden, the Democrat, and it came down to the electoral votes of two states in the South, South Carolina and Louisiana. And by this time, um, uh, Reconstruction was losing its steam and the Democrats gave, gave the election, if you like, to the Republicans, which were the initially the anti-slavery party, which were initially the party of, uh, of reconstituting a society that makes room for African-American power and, and authority and economic life. And in exchange, the, the Tilden camp um, allow, uh, made the deal that if Hayes, the Republican, was allowed to, to take the White House, his government had to in, immediately re, uh, withdraw the Union forces that still occupied parts of the Deep South, and thus bring a formal end to attempts to rebuild a new society. Uh, and so Hayes took the White House, the troops were withdrawn, and Reconstruction collapses in early 1877. Right, so the, the rights of African Americans uh, depended on the willingness of the federal government to stay with guns, and they just basically get exhausted, right? Um, it appears that way. It, <laughs> do you feel like it, there, there was, it, it was inevitable in a society in which white status was so tied to subordinating black people that uh, in, Reconstruction falling was just going to be inevitable no matter what? No, uh -huh. I don't think it was inevitable. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think it was one of these pivot points in history where things could have gone better. They could have gone the other way. And, uh, and we've lived with the consequences ever since. Uh, white supremacy was after the Hayes-Tilden Compromise and the end of Reconstruction. White supremacy was fortified in the Deep South, and it was, in, it was made uh, extremely brutal in its forms of enforcement, and with all kinds of measures such as um, convict leasing and, right. and, uh, and um, voting, uh, voting rights were withdrawn from African-American men, and uh, all business run by black people was driven out of, uh, out of, uh, out of power. And this, this kind of fortified white supremacy, I believe, um, is then exported to the rest of the United States 
as African-Americans begin to leave the South and some of the methods that were perfected by the white South are then taken up by whites around the United States in their own communities as African-Americans are coming into the Northern and Western states. Um, so yeah, it's, it's an extremely important turning point and it could have gone another way. Well, this gets at your point about each, the next generations having to live with the consequences of what the ancestors did, you know, and you, 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 you are making clear in your comments here and in your book, how a violence-backed white supremacy was the central organizing principle, not just of the South, but of the United States. And whites in those eras, that was accepted. All whites <clears throat> participated in a racial order in which whites were on top and they were follow-on institutions to, from slavery, peonage, Jim Crow. And you allude to um, the idea that today, uh, if Constant, if we had an HBO special where uh, a Constant Lacorn was brought forward <laughs> to today, he would look around and he might see some things he recognizes, right? Right. But the, with the difference being that there are a lot more white al allies for racial equality now. He might, yes. Mm -hmm. um, well, I, I think that white supremacy is a spectrum mm -hmm. of consciousness. It is not just white violence against people of color, but it is an attitude of mind that mm -hmm. crosses the whole political spectrum. Mm -hmm. Many white people will tell any tell anyone who asks that their families were not entitled. Their families do not experience the benefits of whiteness. Their families have struggled and uh, have come uh, up from modest uh, beginnings to find a, a precarious foothold in uh, economic life and the in many ways, they're telling the truth. Uh, an immigrant family who comes through Ellis Island in the turn of the century, the 1900s and 1910s, uh, enters at a quite low level on, on the platform of American society. But when they arrive at Ellis Island, they set their foot on the upper tier of a two-tier caste society that has been shaped by um, slavery and Jim Crow, mm -hmm. and they are able to rise into property ownership and uh, economic prosperity um, uh, using tools that are denied mm -hmm. um, African-Americans. Now, that, that's also a part of family history that many people are unable to um, acknowledge. So this may seem a bit like a diversion, but it's in the book, and it's been in the news of late. Um, the phenomenon of blackface, right? So uh, someone recently asked me, and it was a white person, what is offensive about blackface? And I wasn't able to really articulate well, but your book actually comments on it a lot. Uh, can you tell us about the origins of blackface and this phenomenon, and particularly tied to Mardi Gras, but this phenomenon of whites putting on blackface and, and, and why 
that's a fact. It's a it's an interesting uh, dimension of our sort of psychological history uh, mm -hmm. in the early in the eighteen forties. I think um, this uh, enormously popular um, popular art called minstrelsy arises, mm -hmm. and it consists of white people um, putting on makeup to appear black and performing music that they have taken from or um, parodied from um, black sources, um, plantation blues and jigs. And blackface, minstrelsy, as it's called, becomes the most popular form of culture for white Americans for a century. It is, there are hundreds of millions of people going to minstrel shows throughout the 1800s and 1900s, right up until World War II. Mm -hmm. It is the most popular form of public musical mm -hmm. art for a century. Mm -hmm. uh, and what it relies on is this fascination of white, by, of white people for blackness, mm -hmm. this um, desire to sort of take the, what, appears to them to be the essence of blackness and put it on themselves and mock it. Mm -hmm. and this, uh, if, you, if you look at any um, uh, film or radio archive source from the early 1900s, you'll find loads of this stuff. Right. And it's offensive because it involves this thing that people call today appropriation. Mm -hmm. And it's offensive because it, uh, in, it involves a kind of desire to domesticate black identity uh, in the white mind, to take control of it and hold it in the mind as a kind of toy. And that's what's offensive about it. Well, thank you for that. We only have a couple minutes and I wanna end um with the hopefulness of the moment we're in. Um, you know, some, as I said before, we've had um, the largest demonstrations in the history of this country with a lot of white people saying Black Lives Matter. I wonder if you think there's something different about this moment, whether we're headed toward perhaps a third reconstruction that might be more enduring than these rituals of, of a few steps forward and then a, a retrenchment, a reassertion of white supremacy. Do you think mm. anything different about this moment? Mm. I think it's uh, too early to say mm -hmm. we're entering a, a third reconstruction. However, I'm optimistic that we're entering a new phase of, of consciousness about ourselves, black folks, and white folks together. The election in November will be, uh, I think, a very loud sign of uh, whether this um, kind of renewed understanding of our racial identities is going to evolve and complicate and become uh, a positive force or not. And so um, I'm hopeful, however. I am too. So what's next for you? Have you exhausted your family history? <laughs> Have you thought about 
<laughs> Can you say? I don't know. I'm working on um, a couple of different things. Mm-hmm. And, uh, or at least this is what I tell my agent. Mm-hmm. That I'm working on a couple of different things. And uh, we'll have to see what develops. But listen, thank you so much for having this conversation. It's been very, it's been a very nice one. Thank you. I've enjoyed it immensely. Yeah. All right. Be well. You too. Thanks for listening to this week's Afterwards podcast. Subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. You can also send us an email at podcast at c-span.org.